Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Merry Christmas, everyone, and thank you for joining me for tonight's live stream. And I know we're going to have a really good time tonight on a fun and educational topic. Uh, We're going to be talking about the archaeological connections to Christmas. You know, this topic that we're going to be talking about tonight is kind of to counteract um, all of the urban legends that we hear on the Internet and uh, the idea that Jesus is just an embellished legend. Uh, He's like a a step away from being complete mythology. But we're going to talk tonight about how Jesus was born into history, into a real time and place, born into the real world. And this is definitely going to be a stream you're going to want to share and discuss with the teenagers in your life, in your home, in your homeschool co-op, in your youth group. Let's get into it here. Many people approach Christmas focused on the celebration, the presence, the time with family, all that stuff is cool. But for the Christian, we have the bold claim. We have the added claim that we are celebrating the birth of Jesus and that Jesus is a real historical person, that our faith is not founded on legend or embellished myth but on real historical events and real people, including Jesus, born into human history. So the question we're looking at tonight is, is there any credibility to this claim that Jesus was a real person? Is there any evidence outside of the Bible that synchronizes with the events described in Luke and Matthew's accounts And, you know, trying to bring together a cohesive story to tell, um, you know, combining both human history and the biblical history together. So here to help me talk about this tonight is Brian Wendell. He's a Canadian pastor who also does news reporting on biblical archaeology and all kinds of biblical archaeology topics. He writes for Associates for Biblical Research. I first found him on their TV show. It's called Digging for Truth. You can go look up the Associates for Biblical Research YouTube channel. I recommend following them. I enjoy their shows. I I think I've mentioned (laughs) one or three times that I struggle occasionally with insomnia. And this is often a channel that I will go to. And I enjoy watching their videos over and over again. They're so educational. 30 minutes, you're in, you're out. And um, Brian Wendell is one of the very frequent contributors to the show. Uh, Quite honestly, he's my favorite contributor. So I just emailed him and asked him if he'd be willing to come on the show. He does a lot of like top 10 shows on biblical archaeology. But what I love about Brian's approach, he's not a professional archaeologist. He's more like a reporter. And he takes it from, from the real like top end Um, research and makes it accessible for regular people like me. Like I'm just a hobbyist when it comes to biblical archaeology. I think you're going to enjoy hearing from Brian and um, I'm looking forward to the conversation. So with that, um, let's go out and hear from our guest, Pastor Brian Wendell. I'll be back here in a few minutes. Here we go. Well, Brian, it's great to have you here. I'm so excited for this conversation. Maybe just give our viewers like kind of the one minute introduction of you, how you got interested in studying more and writing about biblical archaeology. Well, thanks, Krista, for the invitation. It's great to be here. Um, Yeah, my name's Brian and I uh, live in beautiful Ontario, Canada. I am a pastor on St. Joseph Island, which is a little island right where the three main Great Lakes meet. Um, and so right up by the Upper Peninsula of North of Michigan. And, uh, and so I'm a pastor here. And I've always loved to, um, to highlight the historical 
context of the passage and show how archaeology biblical text. And um, this all kind of started for me, I think, as I've looked back over my life. When I was a teenager, I was given um, a, a Thompson's Bible. And in the back of that Bible, it had an archaeological supplement. And so at a time when a lot of people are questioning um, what they've been raised with and questioning their beliefs and their faith in God, I find it very helpful to be able to read a section of scripture and then flip to the back to the archaeological supplement and read about the history of that site or that person or that particular event. And so um, so I, I have since then always kind of followed it and enjoyed it. I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention Indiana Jones as a bit of a as a bit of an inspiration, uh, although I recognize now that uh, that what's on screen and the reality of archaeology are two different, but but certainly spurred me direction. And so I am, uh, in addition to being a pastor, I'm a staff researcher and writer with the Associates for Biblical Research at BibleArchaeology.org, and I run my own blog at BibleArchaeologyReport.com. That's great. And uh, I definitely want to refer people to those resources and uh, go follow Brian and his work both at ABR and at his own website. Um, I'm so excited to get into this conversation. We're going to be really unpacking an article that you did a few years ago uh, called The Archaeology of Christmas. I'll put a link to that in the description to this video. But I think that since this is kind of the first time we've ever talked about archaeology on this podcast, now for me, I, maybe it'd be good for me to explain a little bit of my interests. Like I started getting interested in archaeology, biblical archaeology, about ten years ago, and I'm I'm just a novice, but I do follow the news pretty closely, and um, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to pass myself off as any sort of archaeologist or anything, but definitely have a uh, an enjoyment of it. I have one daughter who enjoys it with me, so we enjoy sending each other um, articles about about different things on this topic. But since this is the first time we've really had an archaeological discussion on this podcast, um, maybe it would be good, and this is a little bit of a curveball. It wasn't in our 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 notes, but maybe it'd be good to talk about what archaeology can actually accomplish as a discipline and, you know, kind of the difference between proof and evidence or proof and data. And, and cause I think that that, that might be something that would be good for us to lay some groundwork first. Sure. Well, um, archaeology itself, I think, is really beneficial in the area of biblical studies for a number of reasons. Two primary ones. Um, the one that everyone thinks of, first of all, is that archaeology time and again does affirm um, some of the details in the biblical text in terms of specific people, things we can learn about them, um, in terms of specific events even that happened. Archaeology has been able to, to help us with some of those. Um, um, there are a, a number, I think we're up over 70 or 80 now, people, biblical people who have been affirmed by archaeology. So it does have this affirming aspect to it. But there is a second um, Thing that archaeology really helps us with, and, and that is it helps us to understand the biblical text. It helps illuminate it, is, is the way I describe it. Oftentimes, um, it's able to provide a lot of the background information that is that is not in the biblical text. Sometimes there's just um, a couple of sentences summarizing something, and then an archaeological discovery will help to uh, illuminate that in a much greater um, in a much greater way. And so I think those are the two primary benefits to archaeology as it as it uh, relates to um, people who like to study the Bible, people who want to know what it says. And and there is you touched on um, on proof versus evidence, right? We live in a world that um, wants to have things proved beyond a shadow of a doubt, but what we don't very often get that in life. What we what we more often get are different, varying degrees of probability. And we place our faith in that, our trust in that. We can even say we're certain of that. But what we have to recognize is that there's a difference. Um, evidence would be more the objective facts. And proof is what you infer from those facts, as uh, Jay Warner Wallace points out. And so while evidence would be the objective nature of things, um, proof would be the subjective nature of those things. And so I often point out that archaeology doesn't prove the Bible. 
what it can do, and I think what it does do quite well, is to show that the Bible is a historically reliable document that we can trust, and and it also helps us by by illuminating different passages of Scripture. That's super helpful because um, I think that you're right. In our the age of the internet, I've noticed you know skepticism is definitely more on the rise, and people have a higher and higher level of proof because it's it's become increasingly difficult to even sift through you know where does rely who's a reliable source and where does that come from. So when we're thinking about biblical archaeology, I think it really is a great help is that it is an academic discipline. It engages in the process of peer review. As much as we must, we might love Indiana Jones, that's not real archaeology. And so I think that that is helpful for us to think about. And so there's people engaged in this endeavor that are not Christians, um, that, that don't even believe in the Bible, but... Um, you know, in terms of like having as an authority in their life, but they do see like, oh, wow, there is some historical rootedness um, in the Bible being an actual ancient source. So this this is a helpful way for us to think about it is kind of um, these data points that where we see crossover between the historical record and um, from what we get from archaeology and the the historical record of, of that was presented to us in scripture, because the Bible is making the very bold claim that um, these events happened in a particular time and place, that this is not once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away. This is, exactly. this is a, a real history. Maybe you could speak to like why that, matters? Why does it really matter that Christianity is situated in a time and a place? I think it matters for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that, first of all, the Bible, that's the, the claim the Bible makes. If you if you look at specific things that are, are in um, Scripture, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, I think of verses that name the 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 so and so year of a, of the particular ruler. We look in the Old Testament the same thing with the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, and um, and contacts they had with other kings around. And so, first of all, um, I, I would argue that's what the Bible claims that it claims to be a historical document. Now, um, are there other parts in the Bible? Yeah, there's poetry in the Bible. Um, there are parables in the Bible, which are just stories that were that appear to be made up to to teach a lesson. But where the Bible claims to be historical through much parts of the Old Testament and through the Gospels, um, what we're talking about, um, and even through the, the book of Acts, we're talking about real history. And um, I, often, I often point out this, the Bible claims to be, people often will say, well, you can't trust the Bible, it's a religious text. And um, I wouldn't argue that the Bible is a is not a religious text. Of course it is. Um, it is a Bible that is, it is a book that um, purports to claim to, to dispense theological truth about who God is and what he has done for us and sending Jesus and what we need to do in order to have our eternal destiny secure. If we can trust the Bible in the historical details, and I believe that we can, I would argue that we can also trust it in the theological details, um, our need for Jesus and and our condition and what God did for us in sending Christ. And so I think I think the two are tied, and I think they're both very important. We've laid some good groundwork here. Let's get into the into Matthew's account a little bit more and talk about that. Um, now it says in Luke chapter one, verses 26 and 27, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So help us think about this kind of historical detail that Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth. They lived in, in, in Galilee. Um, how do we know about that? How do we think about these kinds of claims? Because this is fairly specific of, of what the text is telling us. 
Well, you're right, Kristen. I, th I think that the, the specificity of what Luke is, is laying out for us uh, demonstrates that he really is rooting this in, in history. I mean, think about, about um, a, a specific person a specific time, a specific place. This isn't what's upon a time in Never Never Land. This is in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. It's in Nazareth, a town in Galilee. It's about a young man and a young woman, Mary and Joseph, Joseph being a descendant of David. I mean, right there, you've got a chronological marker, you've got a geographical site, and you've got a brief genealogical detail. This is, this is highly specific. And this this idea of Nazareth is, is really important, I think, because um, Nazareth has kind of come under a bit of attack um, in, in recent years. There are people who have argued that um, there was no town of Nazareth in the first century. A man named René Salm uh, wrote a book called The Myth of Nazareth, The Invented Town of Jesus, in which he argues that Nazareth didn't begin to exist until the second century AD after Jesus was born, so therefore Jesus didn't exist. Now, leaving aside the horrible logic of that particular statement, um, the reality is that there have been excavations in Nazareth, and they have demonstrated that Nazareth was occupied in the first century. Not only that, that it was it was occupied by Jewish people in the first century. They have uh, found uh, tombs with fragments of ossuaries in it. An ossuary is a bone box that was used by the Jewish people for a very brief period in history, largely just in the first century, um, only for about 100 years. And so that tells us that, that we're set now in the right time and that there are people who are Jewish who are living there. There were storage pits and cisterns from the time of Jesus that were excavated. And, and more recently, there have been two courtyard houses, which, are, which date to the first century, which have been found in Nazareth, including one that... Um, that Dr. Ken Dark, who was the man who led the excavations there, had noted show signs of veneration from early Christians. And so he suggests that early Christians uh, looked at this particular uh, house and, and it's, it's spectacular and how well it still, um, it still remains. It still has the windows and the door frame intact in it. And, and so he suggests that this was the house that was venerated early on as the childhood home of Jesus. Now, whether it was or wasn't is another argument, just that there, it was venerated as such. So, so the bottom line is that, um, that, that these details that Luke put in there, first of all, are accurate. Um, and second of all, set it in a very specific place and point in history. And, um, and, and that town of Nazareth, as we start to learn more about it, we discover that it was a, a small, predominantly Jewish village, which is what the, the impression you get from reading Luke's gospel. Very good. So, you know, there's really no doubt about it. Nazareth is a real, was a real place. And Luke really seems to want us to think about these events by giving us all these details and uh, the, to know that Jesus was born into a time and a place and biblical archeology span comes along and, and really helps um, build out that picture even more. Now, in the next chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 2, um, Luke tells us this. He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Wow, Luke's giving us a lot of details there. Like, you know, he might not be telling us, you know, 2022, but he's he's effectively giving us uh, uh, almost, a, you know, a, definitely like a rough date, a location, and then one location, and then he's taking us to another location. There's, there's a lot to unpack there. Maybe let's start talking with Bethlehem. Um, do we know about Bethlehem? Sure. I mean, that's a good place to start. And, and some, of, uh, some of your podcast listeners may not know that there were actually two Bethlehems in the first century. There was Bethlehem, which was um, south of Jerusalem, um, about a little over 100 miles south of Nazareth. And then there was a Bethlehem of Galilee, which was 
just a few miles west of Nazareth. And so some people, some uh, modern critics have said, you know what? No, Jesus must have been born in Bethlehem of Galilee. I mean, a pregnant woman wouldn't make that journey. And it's far more reasonable to us. She um, was born nearby. But the Bible is very specific and very clear that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. That's the southern Bethlehem. Both gospel writers um, affirm that. Moreover, we have the Old Testament prophecy from Micah 5 verse 2, stating that the ruler of Israel will be, would come from Bethlehem Ephrathah, which was in the territory of the biblical tribe of Judah. That's the southern uh, Bethlehem. And so um, people have also said, well, now it was the northern Bethlehem because there's no evidence that Bethlehem of Judea was occupied in the first century. And um, and so maybe just kind of just I'll, I'll just mention uh, a couple of things about that. First of all, that's an argument from silence, which is never a great logical argument to make. We don't find any evidence. And so um, so it wasn't occupied. We make this definitive statement. The reality is that there have not been a lot of long term, um, highly um, dedicated excavations in Bethlehem. But that doesn't mean that there haven't been discoveries about Bethlehem. So um, recently, in May 2012, so just, just a decade ago, the Israel Antiquities Authority uh, announced the discovery of a bula, which is just a, a very small uh, clay um, impression made by a seal. And on it, it had the name Bethlehem. It was probably um, around a, a thing of taxes, went from Bethlehem to Jerusalem at the time, and it dates to the 7th or 8th century BC. We know from writings from the Byzantine era that, that, the, that Bethlehem was occupied at that time, and so now we have Iron Age occupation, we have the Gospels that say it was it was occupied in the first century we have byzantine um, occupation and when they did a, a survey of the site in 1969 it produced pottery from the iron age from the roman era and from the byzantine so we have that affirmed moreover there were some excavations very limited excavations but excavations in 2015 2016 near the city near the church of the of the nativity they were carried out under the direction of Dr. Shimon Gibson and Dr. Joan Taylor and the team unearthed an abundance of pottery and ex, uh, and artifacts from the 1st century in an interview um, Shimon Gibson said that he was at the southwest corner of the Church of the Nativity, and he said, we're sinking a trench down here to the early levels, and we have, without a doubt, pottery dating to the time of Jesus. And he said, we've been able to now demonstrate that there was a village here at the time of Jesus. So yes, uh, Bethlehem of Judea um, was where Jesus was born, and yes, there was uh, it was occupied as a village in the first century, probably a humble little village that um, was not all that significant, which, if you think about it, is pretty appropriate for the humble way our Savior came into the world. Wow, that's so good and um, so affirming to our faith that we, when we think about those little details, like who would have thought that there would be two Bethlehems, but uh, God in his providence made it very clear which Bethlehem, you know, that, that we're talking about. That's that's so interesting. Um now, Luke also mentions in chapter two, two very specific names, Augustus and Quirinius. Uh, and I'm thinking that Luke is, you know, giving us these details because he wants us to know that these are real people. Um, do we know anything about Augustus and Quirinius? Uh, has archaeology shed any light on these people or about this census that that's mentioned in Luke 2. Yeah, this is a huge issue because there are people who look at this particular verse in uh, specifically and go, ah, see, Luke, Luke got it all wrong. And so, uh, first of all, we know a lot about Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the second emperor of the Roman Empire. He was the great nephew of, uh, of Julius Caesar. He reigned from 27 BC to 14 AD. 
And um, what's really interesting, a lot of know about this particular discovery, um, one of the most important, in my mind, one of the most important discoveries made of New Testament era inscriptions is called the, the Res Gestae, or the Acts of Achievements of Caesar Augustus. This was an autobiography that Caesar himself had written and placed in numerous places around the empire. There are four copies that have survived, including one that is a near-complete Latin text with Greek translation at the temple in uh, the Ankara temple in Turkey. And what's really interesting is it is that in this particular inscription, Caesar Augustus himself describes how he took numerous censuses of the Roman Empire. And so, so when Luke talks about um, Caesar Augustus issuing a census of the entire Roman Empire, we know from archaeology that's what he did on numerous occasions. And so now people have tried to pinpoint which one was it. And now we start to get into some of the thorny issues because um, it depends when you think Jesus was born, which is itself, we'll talk about this later, is tied to when Herod the Great died. There was a, a census that Caesar Augustus took that we can pinpoint to 8 B.C., and some people think Herod died in 4 BC. And if a census took a couple of years to complete, maybe that's the one. Maybe Jesus was born about 6 BC. Um, so that might be it. There was another registration. So, so not um, a pure census, but a registration very similar in which, which happened in about 2 or 3 BC, where uh, everyone had to come and go back to their place and, and, um, and swear allegiance to Caesar as, as the father. Um, as their as the one who would be ruler, father of their country, and uh, the fourth century historian Erosius suggests that this is the census that Luke is referring to, um, and this would have occurred about two B.C. So if Herod died in one B.C., which is the other view, um, and Jesus was born in about two B.C., maybe that's the census. As soon as you start trying to pinpoint things, you're dealing with very limited data. And um, do we know all of the censuses that took place or all the registrations that took place from ancient history? I don't think we do. Uh, but what we can say is that when Luke says Caesar Augustus ordered a, uh, a census, we have an archaeological discovery which tells us that Caesar Augustus on numerous occasions ordered a census. And then, of course, we have Quirinius. Quirinius uh, is a very famous, well-known Roman official who who lived in the um, the 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 first century before, uh, first century BC, first century AD, from about 51 BC to 21 AD. He is mentioned by name by numerous historians, Josephus, Suetonius, uh, Pliny, Cassius Deo, Tacitus, Strabo, Strabo, Caesar Augustus himself mentions him. And so he is well known. In fact, um, Josephus tells us that it was Quirinius who oversaw, oversaw a census in about what, what we would pin to about 6 AD. Now, some people then look at that and they say, well, hang on, hang on. See, Luke got it wrong. He got his facts all muddled up and, and it, it, Jesus was born before that, but he kind of conflated the two events. Um, but others have pointed out a couple of different things. First of all, the, the phrase that Luke uses is not that he was the governor, the technical phrase. The phrase is a far more general phrase that he was governing at that time. And so, well, that changes things. We can't just say he was governor. The second thing is that um, the Bible actually mentions that second census in the Gospel of Acts. And so um, Luke mentions the second census. He mentions this first census, and they seem to be two different censuses in his mind. Uh, some people have suggested maybe Josephus got the data wrong and 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 Luke is right. Here's what I do. I tend to take a step back and I go, isn't it interesting that Luke describes Caesar Augustus ordering a census? And what do we have from history? We have Caesar Augustus claiming to have on multiple occasions ordered a census. We have Quirinius, who we know was governor of Syria in 6 AD, conducting and overseeing a census. Isn't that interesting that he is the type of man who was tasked with this particular job? He very well might have been tasked with an earlier census of which we don't have a historical record sometime around um, the birth of Christ. The reality is that historical sources around Quirinius's life, it's a big gap 
right at the period of time we really would like to know, right around Christ's birth. And so, um, again, you're talking about an argument from silence. I step back, I go, look at this. This is historically accurate descriptions of the people as we know them from history. Well, that's super helpful, and that helps me to have a way to think about it. And we should probably highlight, you know, again, that there's only a small uh, fraction of the archaeological record that's actually been um, excavated. And so even though excavations are happening all the time, it's like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of those actually get, you know, excavated, and some other fraction of those get published, you know, in peer-reviewed journals. So, you know, there's, when you're talking about, you know, we need more data for this, I, I think that it's important for us to have an appreciation uh, for that statement, that that's not just some sort of God of the gaps argument, um, but that that is a real issue in archaeology in general. Um, sure. I don't know maybe if maybe I can that. jump jump right in on that, just yeah. so people have a have an accurate picture of kind of the limits of archaeology. Um, my friend Scott Stripling, who is our head archaeologist at ABR, in his book *The Truth in the Trowel*, mentions that only about five percent of the sites in the Southern Levant have been excavated. So, ninety-five percent of the biblical sites not excavated. Um, other sources say that only about 1% of ancient Egypt has been unearthed, despite the priority that's been given to it really since the beginning of archaeology. So you won't have this small percentage, let's say five, let's say it's 5% of the biblical world has been excavated. And of those sites, only about 5% of that particular, those particular sites are excavated. Um, Ephesus might be the most heavily excavated biblical site, and only about 20% of New Testament exca- uh, Ephesus has been excavated. In most sites, it's far smaller than that. So you have only 5% of the sites excavated. You only have 5% of each site that is excavated, and then only a small percentage of that is, is actually published. And so the vast majority of the material culture from the time of, of the Bible throughout history has actually been unearthed. Frankly, it's, it's shocking and surprising how much evidence we have. We have literally hundreds and hundreds of synchronisms where history matches up with, um, with the Bible. Now, I don't want to say that there aren't any controversies that are aren't there isn't data that isn't interpreted a different way that see the thing is that that the data is always interpreted that's why the old adage is true if you have two archaeologists you're likely going to get three opinions so so you have to just know this and and not be surprised that there is debate i think debate is healthy i think that's a good thing but given the limits of archaeology you have to understand that and, and then having understood that to see how much evidence we have supporting scripture really is amazing. That's, that's really good. And I'm glad you were able to put some numbers to all of that because that's super helpful. Okay, we're back live. <laughs> I want to let you know that just last night I um, opened registration on my next class. It's going to be on the book of Revelation. And the registration is now open. If you go to centerforbiblicalunity.com website, you click on classes. It's right there at the top. You can register. We're going to be doing a deep dive into the book of Revelation. If you've taken my previous class on how to really interpret the Bible or God's big story, this is a great continuation to that. If you took my class, uh, Church and Last Things, This is also a great continuation of that class. But even if you've never taken a class from me, you can jump in and take uh, the class and enjoy the ride with us. Come on the journey. And um, I know Allison, who's one of my moderators tonight, has taken several classes. She's already signed up for the Revelation class. But we're going to be practicing how to interpret the Bible properly and practicing those skills, learning those skills. And so I want to invite all of you to go jump in. You can get all the information there on the Center for Biblical Unity website. Just click on now enrolling, just click on that button and it'll take you to all the information 
and you can see if that's for you. With that, we're going to go and hear the rest of my conversation with Pastor Brian Wendell from Associates for Biblical Research and thinking about the archaeology of Christmas. Here we go. All right, well, let's get back into Luke 2 here. Um, I'm going to read a few more verses, and then we're going to really get into some some interesting things I think our viewers are going to enjoy. Um, it says in, later in Luke 2, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to a, her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now I'm reading from the most recent version of the new international version. And so that, that word guest room might uh, catch people off guard. There was a, a, the traditional kind of going back to the King James Bible was there was no room for them at the inn, but NIV has changed it to, there was no guest room available. What's going on here? Uh, tell us a little bit about where exactly Jesus was born. Um, I thought he was born in a stable. So help me help us out here. Sure. And, and you know, it's interesting. We, we have a tendency to read scripture through our 21st century Western North American mindset and then project that back into the first century. And so we read these verses often, particularly if you're reading it in an older translation, and we go, the, the idea we have is that, you know, um, Mary and Joseph pull up late one night, so they check out the Motel 6, and uh, there's no vacancy there, but there's, you know, the barn out back has some space in the stall with the animals, and so that's where they go, and that's where they uh, have their child. And um, some of the newer translations are starting to recognize that there, there are some specific words here that are used in the Greek that we have to pay attention to. Plus, archaeology has helped to illuminate this particular issue for us. So let me see if, if we can work through this. First of all, um, there is no stable mentioned in the story. The only thing that is mentioned is a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals, and, uh, and the, the, the guest room or the inn. Uh, the, the word that's used there is, is a word, uh, the word, Greek word kataluma, which is interesting because Luke only ever uses it one other time, and that is in the story at the end of Jesus' life, where the Last Supper is held in the upper room. It's a word translated upper room or guest room. And uh, my friend uh, Gary Byers, who's an archaeologist, points out that that a, this is better translated guest room or upper room, not an inn. In fact, he points out that there was a Greek word for inn, and Luke knew it because he uses it, a different Greek word, in the story of the Good Samaritan, where the Good Samaritan comes along and helps this man who's been attacked and takes him to an inn. There's even an innkeeper, in the Greek word used in that particular part of the story. So, so right away, we have the, the text suggesting that it was a guest room, an upper room. The second thing that helps us is as we have excavated all kinds of homes from the biblical world, um, archaeologists have discovered um, these stone, carved stone mangers. And so um, there may have been ones built out of wood back then too, but we know there are carved stone mangers and they are often found inside homes. And so there was sometimes a, what we might call, a, I'll use this phrase just because it will help maybe people understand, a, a stable room within the house on the main floor of a first century house. They were often two levels. And um, that stable room would have been a place where they would have housed um, young sheep that had just been born or sick lambs, or maybe the fatted calf would have been kept there. The fatted lamb would be kept there. Those types of animals would have been kept there, those that were that were vulnerable. And that's where the manger would have been. Um, and so this changes our picture of what happened in the first century, if we put this all together. Uh, rather than, than Mary and Joseph giving birth in the barn out back of a, of a hotel, um, I think what happened was Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem. Um, first century culture, hospitality was huge in the East, it still is today. And they arrived at the home of a family member to stay there while the census took place. And um, 
everybody was coming home to their ancestral homes. And so another family member, likely an older uh, person or couple, got there first. They got the upper room, and Mary and Joseph were given the stable room in a house. Um, and so rather than Mary giving birth um, kind of on her own, all alone, except for a donkey and a few sheep, I would suggest to you it's probably more realistic that Mary gave birth in a family home, the family home of Joseph, surrounded by loved ones. In fact, I suggest there might have been a bit of a celebration. I didn't think about it. How did the how did the shepherds know where to find a baby who had just been born? Well, a birth is a celebration in that culture. And if this is the case, if this scenario that I've painted is accurate, and, and I think it is based on the text, based on archaeology, based on some of the research of Gary Byers, I, I think it's an accurate picture of what's happening in that verse. Yeah, that certainly just, I can see why the NIV is trying to make that correction in the translation. You know, it's not like they're going liberal or anything. It's it's that they're trying to reflect, you know, an aspect of some of this archaeological research and making, you know, an adjustment to the translation that is actually probably more, um, more representative of what the translation is really trying to get at. So this is super helpful. Now, you just mentioned a minute ago, the shepherds. So I'm going to read the next few verses and have Bob put those on the screen for everyone. Uh, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And I, I'm. this makes me wonder about the shepherds. Um, what do we know about them? I'm showing pictures throughout this stream from our friend Todd Bolin um, sent me his his library of images to use for this stream. So if people want to know where I got these images, go to our friend Todd Bolin at BiblePlaces.com and check out his good work there. But, you know, I'm wondering about the shepherds. Like, um, what do we know about ancient shepherding in, in that culture? What's really interesting, and, and I think there's a really specific um, historical possibility with the shepherds in the narrative story. Um, historical sources tell us that just north of Bethlehem was a place called Migdal Eder. Uh, the Tower of the Flock is the translation of that. And while we don't know its exact location today, um, it used to be where certain shepherds grazed a, a flock of sheep. And um, these were special sheep that were destined for the sacrifice in the temple. Um, this particular uh, place, Migdalita, it's mentioned in uh, Micah 5, 4, 8 as the watchtower of the flock. Interestingly, just a few verses before Micah's prophecy about Christ being born in Bethlehem, uh, Alfred Edersham in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, describes it this way. He says, this Migdal Eater was not the watchtower for the ordinary flocks which pastured on the barren sheep ground beyond Bethlehem, but lay close to the town on the road to Jerusalem. A passage in the Mishnah leads to the conclusion that the flocks which pastured there were destined for temple sacrifices, and accordingly that the shepherds who watched over them were not ordinary, uh, ordinary shepherds. The same Mishnaic passage also leads us to the infleur, infer that these flocks were out there all year round. Now, there's no way of knowing conclusively the exact place of the shepherds. We do know that by the time of Jesus, shepherd, the, the institution, the job of a shepherd had kind of fallen into some disrepute. Um, but these particular shepherds, if, if this is accurate, think about this. There was a group of shepherds the night Jesus was born north of Bethlehem who were raising Paschal lambs that would actually be sacrificed at Passover in Jerusalem. And if you think about it from that perspective. What does Paul call Christ in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7? He calls Jesus our Passover lamb. There is so much richness of meaning there. Um, that might be it. At the very least, what we can say, again, if we step back, we can say, hey, this is consistent with what we know from ancient historical sources, that there were shepherds in the area of Bethlehem. And isn't it interesting that they were caring for a specific uh, flock of sheep that were destined for the temple sacrifices. 
Very good. And and this is why I'm always um, talking about the importance of geography, for example, on this channel. We had Todd Bolin here back in June to talk about the importance of geography. Most people might not know that Bethlehem and Jerusalem are located just within a few miles of each other. So the thought that these lambs were um, potentially being raised for the temple sacrifice isn't that's not a crazy idea. Like it's it, they, they they weren't fifty miles away. It, it's in fairly close proximity. So it's a very provocative thought that um, Edersheim puts forward. So thanks for sharing that. Um, now there's a short retelling at the end of the chapter two in Luke that often um, we don't get to. Um, until maybe a week or two after Christmas. But um, I think it's worth bringing up here that that when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple for circumcision, it, it says this, uh, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Maybe give us a little bit of insight into what's happening there in that account. Does, does archaeology give us any insight into this issue? Well, there's one there's one point that's interesting that I'll touch on with archaeology, but just about the particular passage itself. So there are a couple of things in there that I think are very interesting. The first is that um, that Jesus was raised, it appears, in a very devout Jewish household. Jesus, uh, Joseph and Mary are are intent on following all of the law the, that's that's prescribed in what we call the Old Testament now. Um, and so they are coming, Mary, to, to give this sacrifice, this offering um, for purification. Um, the second thing, which is a really interesting detail, is that Jesus was born in a relatively poor household because the actual sacrifice that was prescribed for purification after childbirth was a, a year-old lamb. And there was a, an exception made for people who couldn't afford that, that they could bring two birds. And that's what we're told that Mary did. So I think it's really important, these details that are that are being put in there, which really just help us to understand and they really illuminate um, the kind of home that Jesus himself would have grown up in. Now, um, one of the things that um, the whole issue of, uh, of, the, of the temple and, and archaeology is a huge issue. You could do a whole episode just on that. But um, there are a number of things. We know that the temple was at the Temple Mount. That's where the temple was. There is no archaeologist who thinks it was anywhere other than that. And there are still the original steps up to the southern steps up to the Temple Mount that are still there. Tourists can go there to this day. So what's interesting is that I believe Joseph and Mary would have walked those steps because those are the southern steps. They're coming from the south, from Bethlehem up to Jerusalem. I believe they would have walked those steps, the main entrance from that direction into the temple when they came to offer these sacrifices and to present Jesus, as was required in the Old Testament law. It's, an, it's, it's just a really fascinating thing to, to go there. If you ever have a chance to go there and stand on those steps and, and to think about that, it's just a fascinating uh, possibility that I think is likely what happened. What a wonderful insight. And um, man, I'm just so enjoying listening to all of this. It's, it's so educational. I know that many of our viewers are going to want to share this content uh, with the students in their family and and really provide some great ground for discussion. Okay, let's quickly go over to Matthew's account. Um, we spend a lot of time in Luke. Luke's got a lot of details, but Matthew has his own details that he shares about Jesus's birth narrative. Um, we're gonna let's talk about King Herod and the wise men. Um, what can you tell us about these? enigmatic wise men that come looking for a Jewish Messiah. 
Well, I can tell you that they're enigmatic. That is a good word for them because we don't really know for sure um, who they were. Uh, this, uh, there have been lots of different groups that that have been identified as maybe those were the Magi, maybe those were the Magi. Some say they were kings. Others say they were Babylonian astrologers or Persian priests or monk-like myths, even from as far away as China has been suggested. And so the reality is that we don't know. The Greek word that Matthew uses there is, um, is uh, the plural of the, of the word uh, magus. And, and, and the Thayer's Greek dictionary defines Magus as the name by the Babylonians, Mege, Persian, wise men, teachers, priests, physicians, astrologers, um, in terms of dreams, sorcerers, a broad term that was used. It, it is used again in the New Testament. It is used to describe Elymas, the magician, the sorcerer in Acts chapter 13, whom Paul um, had a run in with. What we cannot say, I think, is that these are people who had studied the ancient Hebrew scriptures. Um, they came looking for the Hebrew king, the one born king of the Jews. And so I suspect that they had spent time studying the Hebrew scriptures. Perhaps they were familiar with uh, the prophecy in Numbers 24, 17. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of the house of Israel. Um, I, I think they were probably familiar with, um, with Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. They may have understood from Daniel's um, prophecy in Daniel 9 that, hey, the time of the Messiah is coming soon. Um, and so they arrive in Jerusalem looking for the one who has been born king of the Jews. And King Herod is not very happy to have the wise men come looking for arrival to his throne. Um, the Bible says that Herod had um, all of the baby boys after he realized the wise men had gone back a different way and had tricked him and didn't come tell him King was born as he was hoping they would so he could um, do away with them. When he found out they had tricked him, he, he had all of the, the boys in the vicinity of Bethlehem um, slaughtered. Just a horrible, horrible thing. Now, um, some people sometimes ask, "Has do we have any historical evidence of that? Um, the short answer is no. We don't have a historical, uh, extra his, uh, biblical confirmation of that particular event. The reality is it may only have been a few dozen boys. That doesn't make it any less horrific, but probably means they not have, have, uh, have covered something like that um, because Bethlehem was just this small, insignificant town. But the other thing that I can say, and this is important, is that this is completely in keeping with the Herod of history. The Herod of history and the Herod of the Bible are the same. Herod killed three of his own sons who he was paranoid about. He thought that they were plotting to take the throne from him. So he had three of his own sons killed. In fact, uh, we're told that Caesar Augustus, when he heard about their deaths, uh, was said to have quipped that it would be better to have been Herod's pigs than his sons. And the, the Greek word for pig and, and son is very similar. So he was making uh, a play on words. Uh, but I think it's important. Again, we step back, we look at the biblical text, and we go, um, the, the person being described here with these events, King Herod, is, is the same King Herod we see, this paranoid tyrant who kills people who he feels threatened by. That's the same Herod we have in, in the gospel. It's the same Herod we have um, from other ancient sources as well. Very good. And, and so when we think about all of these rulers and, and the names of them, because Luke includes Augustus and Quirinius, Matthew includes Herod, and we know quite a lot about Herod um, from history. He was in a very important ruler um, over Israel during the Roman period. But now we have to think about like, you know, do all of these kings sync up? And I, I know that earlier you you alluded to, that's a little bit of a, a messier question. So maybe you could walk us through that now of like, how do we line up Quirinius, Augustus, and Herod? Sure. I mean, most times when people are, are trying to look at the chronology of Christmas, they're, they're, we're trying to pinpoint when was Jesus born? Can we, can we narrow it down? Can we even 
find a year that Jesus may have been born. Uh, of course, people from history know that, that there was no year zero. It went from 1 BC to 1 AD. And so where in that was Jesus born? And so we do have um, Caesar Augustus, emperor from 27 to BC to 14 AD. And then we can narrow that down a little bit because Quirinius was, uh, was largely... Um, an influential Roman official in the decade before, decade BC, and the first decade AC uh, or AD, and so we can narrow it down a little further. But then we come to King Herod, and King Herod is 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 the key, I think, to all of this, um, because um, King Herod's death is linked with the birth of Jesus. You'll remember that that Herod tried to kill the baby Jesus, and and Joseph was warned in a dream. He went uh, went to Egypt, and when he had heard that um, that Herod had died and his son was reigning, he came back from Egypt. So, so the birth of Christ and shortly thereafter was shortly before Herod died. And our primary source for Herod and for his death is Josephus. And if anyone has done any research into this, you know that uh, you it's like falling down a rabbit hole. It is a convoluted journey of contradictory um, data and sometimes different data, depending on which year of manuscript you're looking at. It, it really is a very difficult thing. It, you, it's usually I've tied been down to, that rabbit hole. That's yeah. right. That's right. It's, it's, so it's it, rough. Yeah. It's rough. It's usually tied to when did Herod's sons begin to reign? And um, and so there are two, just to summarize it all, there are two views. The, the consensus view is that he died in 4 BC. And if that's the case, then Jesus would have been born in 5 or 6 BC. There is a minor, minority view that Jesus uh, that Herod died in 1 BC, in which case Jesus would have been born in 2 to 3 BC. And and. I myself, um, I I would land on the minority view. I think that Herod probably died in 1 BC. I think so for a number of reasons. First of all, um, we're told that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry, Luke chapter 3, verse 23, and that it was during the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, um, which um, has been dated to 29 AD. So that backs us up into the early part of uh, probably... 2 BC, 1 to 2 BC-ish. Uh, secondly, someone has done a study of the manuscripts of Josephus and noticed that before 1544, all of the data in the, the data, the key data point in the manuscripts of Josephus indicated uh, a 1 BC death for Herod. And then after 1544, they indicate a 4 BC date for Herod's death. It seems that there was a mistake that a copyist made that got propagated. And so all of the later ones have the 4 BC. All the earlier ones imply a, a 1 BC date. Um, I would also note that, that most or many of the early Christian writers um, all pinpointed Jesus' birth to about the 2-3 BC um, uh, time frame. I, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, um, Origen, Eusebius, they all date Christ's birth as well. Plus, if one takes that um, registration, that enrollment that I talked about earlier that um, Orosius mentions that happened in in uh, in 2 BC as the, the census, then it all kind of seems to coalesce around that 2 to 3 BC time frame. And so because of that, I would suggest that Herod likely died in 1 BC. There is a mention of uh, of this um, eclipse that happened just before Herod's death, but that doesn't really help us because there was one around 4 BC and one around 1 BC, and they argue which one was seen more. So that doesn't really help us much either. But, but we pinpoint them. What we can say is that even though we can't maybe be exactly specific. Jesus was born on December 25th. By the way, Jesus probably was not born on December 25th, just so everybody knows. But, but you know, a particular day in a particular year, we can narrow the window down to get with, I think, in a couple of years. And, um, and I would suggest to you that Luke has proven to be accurate in so many other ways. This is one of those ones that is disputed. And, and I'm, I tend to give Luke the benefit of the doubt and, and trust him as, on this one as well. Yeah, certainly looking at Luke's track record, there's there's at least uh, that's a reasonable um, thing to do, I think, you know, because we never know. There could be something unearthed tomorrow that um, would bring greater clarity. But that that line of trajectory for Luke is that he gets confirmed 
time and time again that he is a man of details and uh and accuracy so you know it's it's an interesting issue like i said i've been down that rabbit hole but i think you helped us um work through that in a really helpful and productive way um as we wrap up here brian thank you so much for doing this you've added such incredible value to the conversation i know some of my uh, podcast listeners are going to want to follow your work. So tell us more about your work at Bible Archaeology Report, as well as Associates for Biblical Research. Sure. Well, um, Associates for Biblical Research is a, just a great group. In fact, before I was ever part of them, I used to follow them as one of the primary sources of information that I went to. Um, I found in them a group of archaeologists and scholars who had a high regard for Scripture, and who did great field work. And so ABR, as we shorten it uh, to, ABR is, is dedicated to demonstrating the historical reliability of the Bible through um, research and through original field work. Um, we lead the excavations right now at Shiloh, Israel. That's the place the tabernacle stood for uh, for 300 years. Prior to that, we excavated at a site called Kerbet el Makater, which we believe um, is the long lost site of the city of Ai. Um, the city that um, that Joshua and the children of Israel conquered, and so um, so I'm privileged to be able to work with them. Um, my role there: I'm a staff researcher and writer, and I uh, write uh, some articles for their magazine, Bible and Spade. I I do a weekly breaking news update. So if you want to stay up to date. Um, on the latest happenings in the world of biblical archaeology on a weekly basis, you can go to ABR's website, which is biblearchaeology.org, and click on the Breaking News tab. And of course, we also have our uh, TV show, Digging for Truth, which is uh, comes out every Sunday night on YouTube, and uh, I've been a frequent guest on that. And so just really privileged to be a part of that organization. And I also run my own blog on the side, BibleArchaeologyReport.com. And I like to just explore the lives of people. There are two uh, main things that I do. I do some interviews, but, but the two kind of most popular ones that I write, one are archaeological biographies, where we look at the lives of different people and what we can learn from archaeology about them. And so if people want to know more about Herod the Great or or Caesar Augustus or Quirinius, you can go to go look up those archaeological biographies. I've written on all three of those people. Um, ju I just did one on Hazael, the, the, the king of Aram, Damascus, who's mentioned in scripture. And then I also have top 10 lists, and, and those just seem to be incredibly popular with people. Um, top 10 lists related to, um, recent one was top 10 discoveries related to the book of Daniel. I have top 10 discoveries related to different people. Um, and then, of course, at the end of every year, coming up soon, we'll be doing this, uh, the top 10 discoveries of the year in biblical archaeology. And so that can all be found at my um, my blog, BibleArchaeologyReport.com. And I guess maybe just I'll, I'll finish with this. The reason I do all of this, when I read at the beginning of Luke, Luke uh, dedicates um, his work to a man named Theophilus. And he says that he's writing to you, uh, most excellent Theophilus, so that you will know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. He says, I've carefully investigated it all. I'm laying it all out for you so you can know the certainty of the things you've been taught. And I see in that a biblical principle that good research in biblical studies should lead to affirming people in their faith. And so that's how I have experienced Biblical archaeology, it's been very affirming in my faith, and the Lord has opened the door for me to, to be involved in that, hopefully doing that for other people too. Well, it's just been wonderful, and I so appreciate um, your work and looking forward to the top 10 list for 2022, uh, and I thoroughly enjoy the TV show Digging for Truth. I want to encourage people to check it out, and just thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks so much, Krista. This has been fun. I've enjoyed it. And we're back. So great to introduce everyone to Brian Wendell. I hope you go follow him. Okay. I know that um, we're, we're wrapping up here a little over time. I do want to make a quick program note about Associates for Biblical Research, because I know that I have a lot of old earth creationist oriented followers. And I just want to say a quick word about the fact that I'm aware that ABR does advocate for a young earth timeline for the creation and the flood. I am an old earth creationist. 
So I differ with these brothers on some of those timeline issues. But um, when it comes to kind of Genesis 12 forward and biblical archaeology, I think they do a lot of important and good work. And in fact, several years ago, I had this kind of concern, this question about ABR. And I asked my friend, Dr. John Bloom at Biola University. He has two PhDs, one in physics and one in ancient Near Eastern studies about whether or not he found the work of ABR credible. John is also an old earth creationist like myself. And he was like, oh yeah, they're, they're solid on, on the, the biblical archeology span side, you know, like Genesis 12 forward. So um, I've also watched and vetted a lot of ABR content. So I think they have an important voice in this space. Even if I don't agree with them on the creation timeline and the flood account, um, I just want to acknowledge their good work in other areas. And even though we have these these little in-house discussions and differences, um, you know, I know that some of my old earth followers might be a little confused as to why I'm promoting ABR. But, you know, like there's some issues we just have in-house debates on and we have to it would it would be a shame to miss out on these types of resources, you know, just because of this this kind of in-house uh, uh, what I would consider a agree to disagree issue. So, you know, um, I'm aware and there's that. That's it for tonight. I hope you have a Merry Christmas. Take care. God bless and good night. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.